Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're, we're at the beginning of the year. We're, we're, this is Shabbos Breshis, and um, I mean, well, actually, it's the day after Shabbos Breshis, but it's a, it's a, it's a great, great new beginning. And, um, and we're back at the Torah, which is, well, we never left the Torah, but, but we're, we're back at it anyway, which is just this awesome privilege to, to just remind ourselves of all the things that, that we absolutely didn't see the last countless times that we looked at the Torah. And um, just standing at the, the opening gates, um, I'll just share with you just a, just a couple of quick thoughts. I want to talk about the, uh, the sun and the moon, uh, maybe in a way that we haven't discussed yet up until now, a, a new perspective on it, which, which uh, excites me. But um, let me just tell you a, a couple of things. One thing is just a, a Torah from the Kutzka Rebbe that, that, that I really like, which is, you know, we just finished celebrating the holiday of uh, Simcha's Torah, where we celebrate finishing the Torah and starting it again, right away. And uh, we dance with the Torah all day and, and, and uh, through the night, and it's, it's really, it's, a, it's an awesome, wonderful celebration. And um, so, so the Kutzka Rebbe asks, what is it that we're actually rejoicing over? So the normal answer would be, well, we just finished the Torah. Right? So his answer is what we're rejoicing over is the fact that we've finished the Torah and yet we understand that we haven't yet even begun. That that's what the celebration is. In other words, we're celebrating the infinity of the Torah. The fact that we know that the Torah is so great that we haven't even begun to study it even as we finished a whole nother cycle through it and a whole nother year of intensive study over it. That we haven't even begun yet. So... So, so one more word before we uh, get into the sun and the moon, which is that something that I heard from my good friend Ari Epstein, which I loved, which is the, the last letter of the Torah is the letter Lamed, and the first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez. So as you're finishing the Torah and starting it again, you go from Lamed to Bez. And uh, that spells out the word Lab, which is, which is heart. Lave is a, is, is a heart. And what he pointed out, which, which uh, I just want to mention, is that you've got this space between the Lamed and the Vase. The Lamed and the Vase. So, so it's really, it's the open heart. So our hearts are open. So, so before we begin Breshis, we go through this period where our hearts are open with all the celebration, with all the... With all the connection that we've done through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and, and Sukkot and Simchas Torah, our hearts are so open to begin the Torah anew. Okay, so um, with that as a little preface, let's get into the whole sun and the moon. So, so the first thing that we have to know is, the, the classic way of understanding the way God created the world is, that God, this is, I'm learning now from the Ramban, is that God basically created everything on the first day. See, if you look in the Torah, you'll see a, a, a whole uh, enumeration of on the first day God created this, and on the second day God created that, and on the third day God created this, and on the fourth day God created that, and it goes through all the way through Shabbos. But the way the Ramban understands it is, first God created absolutely everything, and then from that from that that mass of creation, from that, from that force of creation, they call it chayil. Uh, I'm not sure what that is exactly, but that ectoplasm, if you will, the, my word, and don't take it too literally, but from that, from that mass of, 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 of creation, God then took from that and then formed the different things over each of the days. So first there was an initial creation of the, the energy of the universe or of the materialism of the universe, I'm not sure what, what form it existed in at that point, honestly. Um, but then God drew from that and created the various things. Now, there, there are different... So that's, that's one opinion. There, 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 there are different interesting things. Now, one of the things that, um, that uh, kind of throws people, and I think that uh, especially the, the modern uh, scientific and, uh, you know, college-educated uh, uh, person gets, gets thrown by, and unnecessarily, unnecessarily, because this is something that's really been, unfortunately, misrepresented by the, the non-Torah world, um, 
who doesn't really understand uh, fully the depth of the Torah and how actually in sync Torah is with science, or perhaps uh, more meaningfully, how, how in sync science is with Torah. And what I'm getting at right now is the age of the universe. And let me just, just give you a couple of very quick thoughts on that, because that's not the topic, um, but just something to have in mind. When we say that according to the Jewish calendar, the world right now is 5,771 years old, everyone should know that that count begins with the, with the birth of human beings, with the creation of human beings. Um, <clears throat> the Vilna Gon, a couple of hundred years ago, pointed out that before God affixed the sun and the moon and the sky on the fourth day of creation, billions of years could have taken place. Billions of years could have taken place. In other words, until the sun and the moon were actually in the sky, you don't have the concept of the 24-hour day any, and, until then. So when, when, it, when the Torah refers to days before then, well, the sun and the moon isn't up yet, so how are we... What are we talking about exactly? So he says that could have been a period of billions of years. So that's, that's I think, very, very meaningful. And then to, to further that point, that was, that was, that's, uh, you know, around 250 years old, that thought at least. Now, going back a thousand years, one of the students of the Ramban, who we mentioned earlier, put the age of the universe at 14 billion years. And what I find, which is more or less what science is saying today, now that's a Jewish source from, and a Torah source, not just a Jewish, you know, kind of radical who just, you know, left Torah and kind of did his own thing. This was a, one of the greatest students of one of our greatest Torah giants, the Ramban, and he based his calculations. This is the thing that really just amazes me beyond belief. He comes up with the number of 14 billion years through psukim, through studying verses, and through various Kabbalistic traditions that were handed down among the Jewish people. So, that's phenomenal. So, so again, what, what, what I'm trying to communicate is that, that, um, that sometimes Torah is, is misrepresented. Often it's misrepresented. And, and orthodoxy, by the way, you should know that the term orthodox Judaism does not appear in the Torah itself. That that's a, that's a social, that's a sociological uh, label that was put when the, when the Jewish people started to develop, uh, unfortunately, different sort of fringe theologies and started to question some of the basic premises of Jewish life over the last several thousand years and then created the, the reform movement, the conservative movement, there, there needed to be a name um, for the group that was doing what Jews have been doing since for the last several thousand years. And they called that group Orthodox Jews. And so, like I say, that, that's, not actually a, that's not actually our term, or that's not based in Judaism. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a useful, I guess, um, sociological or anthropological um, you know, label to put on just to, just to make a distinction. The problem with that, though, is, is that orthodox, in my mind, means rigid. And orthodox means fundamentalist. And orthodox means um, you haven't got a clue, basically, you know? <laughs> like, you know, if you're, okay, you're orthodox, I don't want to know you. You know, so, I mean, I, I never use the term myself. If, if, uh, if, if, <laughs> if allowed to not use the term, I don't, you know, because, like I say, it, it, it just summons all sorts of um, literalistic ideas that just are just um, false, basically. That's, that's the bottom line. So, I'm sorry? Well, you can say, uh, some people like to say uh, an observant Jew, but I, I think that just, or Torah Jew, I, I like Torah Jew, you know. Uh, tradi- tra- yeah, I mean, you, you have to, you know, I, I heard someone come up with this phrase recently, or I didn't hear from him directly, but someone said it in his name, I don't know who, but I liked it, he said, he said he's a classic Jew. <laughs> kind of like classic Coke, you know, but I, I actually like that, you know, I think that that's kind of good, because, because when people find out what classic Judaism is, like I said, we've been saying for a thousand years that the world is 14 billion years old. And yet, you know, people will try to stick on us. No, it's 5,000, whatever. And anyway, there's, 
there, there's lots to be said on, on, on all these topics, but, um, but let, me just, uh, let me just get into it a little bit more. And I want to zero in on the, on the, on the sun and the moon, which is, um, which is something, it's a topic that we've touched on at different times, but I have uh, sort of new information, <laughs> new information just, just in from the, from the 12th century. <laughs> Actually, let me just let me just comment on that for for one moment because I I, I think this is very interesting to me as someone who's you know I who's been to college and and who's studied you know the various subjects as 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 they're taught um, and uh, and and there's something that's really unique to Torah that just deserves some real appreciation because the the thought I'm about to tell you is from uh, well, it's going to take a while to get to but it's from Rabbeinu Bukhaya by way of the Gomorrah and by way of the, the, the Torah itself. And um, anyway, uh, it's going to deal with um, the, 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 the solar year and the lunar year and the difference between them and philosophically what that represents and what that says about us and all sorts of things, the offerings in the Holy Temple, lots of stuff coming. But, um, but the point is this, that Torah, as far as I know, as far as I know, is the, is, is the only intellectual discipline, and now I'm throwing in the sciences and the humanities, so I'm including everything anyone would study in college or something like that, or grad school, that, that is a... You see, there, there's a very famous book, and if you haven't read it, I, I really recommend it. It's, it's called the, the, um, the Structure of Scientific Revolution... Uh, of, Structure of Scientific Revolution, I believe that's it. Um, and uh, maybe I'm misquoting it, uh, but Thomas Kahn, Kuhn, I don't know. Now I'm stuck empty-handed. But, but the, it's a very, very famous book, and what, what it talks about is paradigm shifts. That's the main thing. It, it talks about how science basically um, develops certain ideas to a certain extent, and then all of a sudden you've got a paradigm shift, and everything that's developed up until that period of time, gets absolutely thrown out. And then everyone starts again. Like, you see that, for instance, very much in chemistry. Like, in chemistry, the whole rage for hundreds of years was, was alchemy. They were trying to find what they called the philosopher's stone, which was that thing which you could touch another substance and turn it into gold. They were trying to turn everything into gold. It was, and this was... This was what ruled the sciences. And then at a certain point, people were like, guys, that's, you're unquestionably brilliant and unquestionably wrong. You're barking up the wrong tree. What are you doing? This is ridiculous. You know, alchemists are portrayed as, as scientists with large conical hats, and they're like wizards, you know? And yet, that was the, that was the height of scientific advancement in its day. So, by the way, as a P.S., and, and we've got many examples of this um, throughout science of things that seem laughably, laughably wrongheaded, and yet we're coming up with the greatest minds of the generation um, in their fields. Um, I wonder what things we prize today that the future will look back on and they'll go, oh, those, those idiots, <laughs> those primitive Thinkers in the year 2010. What, what did they have in mind? Seemingly, they could have come up better than that. And so, it's it's worth it just as an exercise, just to look at the the real orthodoxies of today, the real intellectual, uh, academic orthodoxies of today, and to ask yourselves which one of these things are absolutely going to be cast aside. I know that um, just another example that pops in my head, but there are zillions of examples of this, by the way is that in the 1950s, they, um, they used to have in shoe stores, you could try on your shoes, and then they had an x-ray machine where you could see how well the shoes fit. So you could actually see the bones of your, shoes, of your feet and how, how, how the contours of the shoe, and just, you know, whether that was a good fit or not. And that was harnessing the power of x-ray in science in order to give you a good-fitting shoe. Now, what do we know today? You're doing x-rays in the middle of a shoe store, like with no like, lead protection and everything like that? It's, that's crazy. 
I mean, it's almost like, well, you, just the beauty is, is that what, do we, what did we revert back to after harnessing the power of x-rays? The thumb test, pressing your thumb against your big tub. You know, the idea that that was, that we went that far and then came back to what just was the most practical, simple, sensical thing, you know. Um, you know, just while we're on this topic, again, before the sun and the moon, I just want to give you one more, one more example. Anyway, just to finish that last point. Torah has had no paradigm shifts. That's the point. That's the point. That I can study um, what the, what Atana said at the time of the Gomorrah in terms of the problem that I'm having right now with x-rays or with um, in vitro fertilization or with the most cutting edge scientific, medical, ethical things and I can look at the thoughts and the writings of someone 2,000 years ago or further back and not only is it relevant not only is it within the same paradigm but I can take it with the utmost seriousness and the utmost authority. And the utmost authority. Now that is unique. That is unique in the intellectual world. That, you know, you have starts and stops. You know, sometimes you have something like, you know, the Pythagorean theorem, for, for instance, which still holds up, right? And that was done quite a while ago. But then you have a gap of, either hundreds of years or, or longer throughout history where nothing was going on in terms of innovation within, within that, that intellectual field, like mathematics or, or, or whatever it is. You know, so, so Torah is consistently, consistently amazing and consistently authoritative from its, from its original paradigm. And that is unique. That is absolutely unique. And like I said, we'll, we'll get to it still. I know, I keep on pushing it off. But I'll, I'll get to the sun and the moon and you'll see how the orbital patterns of things and the amazing things that we can learn from this were derived way, 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 way back and yet are still very relevant. So, so that's that. Um, now, just in terms of the, the toe test, pinching your toe um, for the shoe, how we went to x-rays you know, I think they were called fluoroscopes, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. X-rays, um, which were highly dangerous and incredibly irresponsible, right? Incredibly irresponsible, but they didn't know it at the time. To, um, to back to the pinch test, right? Which is comical that, that we went to extremes like that. Let me give you another example. And this is something that was very meaningful to me, something that I thought about at some point, which is that, um, you know... What we Jewish people um, rely on, and really, you know, you, you should know that the foundation of Christianity is that the Torah was given to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And the foundation of Islam is that the Torah was given to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. So both of them, both of those are religions, like Judaism, is completely based on the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. You should know that. So, um, and we can go into more detail, but, but just trust me that that's accurate. And then they just go on to say, well, then God cast aside the Jewish people and took on the Christians. And then, then the Muslims say that God cast aside that the Jewish people and took on the Christians. And then he cast aside the Christians and took on the Muslims. And there are several religions to this day, like in the Sikh world, that continues this chain. And then he cast aside the Muslims and he took on the Sikh. But everyone is agreeing that God picked the Jews. And the Jews are saying, God never exchanges for anyone. God never exchanges for anyone. And in fact, you know, one of the foundations of the Torah, if you actually read the Torah, is the mitzvahs are 100% forever. And anyone who comes and tells you that the mitzvahs are no longer obligatory or no longer relevant, that's the definition of a false prophet. That is the definition of a false prophet to say that the mitzvahs are no longer relevant or obligatory upon us. So, the Torah is very clear on this point. It's very, very, very clear. Um, so, let's, uh, let's keep on going. So, we depend on, we depend on this testimony, which comes from our father and our mother before us, and their father and their mother before them, and their father and their mother before them, and all the way back to Mount Sinai. 
where we make this outrageous claim that no other religion has the audacity to make, which is that God spoke to several million people at once. Several million people at once at Mount Sinai. I mean, it's the most audacious claim for the reason that it's the easiest thing to disprove in the world if it's not true. The easiest thing to disprove if it's not true. And yet what you see is a nation of slaves taking on the most exacting lifestyle changes. Like, why would they ever do that? Something, if I'm a slave and I get freed, so long, I'm starting my own business. You know what I mean? I'm not listening to anybody after that experience. I'm going out on my own, you know? So the idea that a whole nation stayed together and took on this entire thing, something happened. Something dramatic happened. And that something was the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Just simple as it is. Um, so, so we, we depend upon the fact that we're witnesses, the children of witnesses, who are the children of witnesses, and that this was passed down. Okay? But that we were all eyewitnesses. And the Torah says that our souls in the present day, that everyone, all Jews were there at that moment also. So you, each one of us actually experienced that too. So we understand deep down that it is true. Because why? Not just because our parents tell us, but also because our parents tell us, but also because we know inside that it's true. Because we were also there. That's what our tradition is. Anyway, here's my point. My point is that there used to be a time where the most authoritative evidence in the world, if you wanted to commit someone in court, the greatest thing, the greatest proof that you could come up with is you have a photograph of that person committing that crime. Here it is. I have a photograph of that person committing the crime. And what do we know today? Today we know that with Photoshop and with, you know, with all of the different special effects that Hollywood has innovated, that Silicon Valley has innovated, right? That any photographic evidence can be manufactured. And, and any tape, any audit, just any evidence, just about, seemingly, can be, can be manufactured in one way or another. DNA has been called into question. Almost everything. And, and so... And so it gets back to the pinching your toe on your foot test, which is that if someone who you really trust and who you love told you something, that kind of becomes the greatest testimony that, that you can offer, the greatest proof. And so it goes back to the most low-tech thing in the world, and yet that becomes the most authoritative thing in the world. It's very ironic. It's very ironic that, that sometimes, you know, sometimes we can advance in what seems to be a more sophisticated, technologically advanced way. And yet, again, ironically, paradoxically, it leaves questions, M- more questions. At first, it's very convincing, but then you start to think about it. You get, you get past the sort of the smoke and mirrors of it and you go, wait a second, wait a second. You know, so, so we have the trusted testimony. And, and, and that's, you can't do better than that when all is said and done. When all is said and done. Okay. So now, let's get back to this idea of the, the sun and the moon. So I want to read you a Pusik. It's a famous, very cool Pusik. And now, if you listen with good ears, because, because you're going to hear, if you listen carefully, how within a few words, this story changes. Okay? And this is chapter 1, verse 16. Okay? It's talking about the fourth day of creation, the creation of the sun and the moon. Okay? And God made two great luminaries. The greater luminary to dominate the day and the lesser luminary to dominate the night and the stars. Alright? So, I'm going to read it one more time, see if you can hear it. There's a big change that takes place, like a few words in. And God made two great luminaries, the greater luminary to dominate the day and the lesser luminary to dominate the night and the stars. So, so maybe you got it, maybe you didn't, but, but here's, here's what the rabbis explain is going on in this uh, passage here. 
When it says two great luminaries, that's obviously referring to the sun and the moon, and the fact that they're called two great luminaries means that they were of equal size. And then the next words are, the greater luminary to dominate the day and the lesser luminary to dominate the night and the stars. So what happens? In the beginning of the passage, they begin as equal in size, and then a few words in, all of a sudden one is bigger than the other. Right? It's, there's, a, there's, a great, there's a great behind-the-scenes story going on over there. So what is, what is, that, what is, that, what is that story? And this begins to get very, very, very deep. Okay? So, on the most simple level, it goes like this. The moon, according to the Midrash, complained. It said, is it right that two heads, right? Because each of the great luminaries, right? They're like, it's like a head. Like, they're round like a head, right? Is it, is it appropriate that two heads should share the same crown? The crown being the sky. Right? So, so that was the moon's question to God. And God said, you know something? You're right. Make yourself small. You know? So, so maybe that wasn't what the moon was expecting, exactly. You know? But that's what the moon got. Excuse me. And I heard uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine say something interesting. He said that every time a person looks at the moon, it can be a, an exercise in humility. You know, because the moon was made small. You know, so that's, that, that, that's interesting. Reb Shlomo Karlovach says something very, very interesting. I'm paraphrasing it, unfortunately, but this was the basic idea. That the moon was asking God, you know, the light of the sun, it, the light of the sun is good for certain things, but it's not, it's not good for everything. You see, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you see, there are certain activities in general, just in general. There are certain activities that are made for daylight, but there are certain activities that are also made for nighttime as well. And, and there's, the, there's a more intimate connection at night. You know, the, the, the connection that we imagine between a husband and a wife. You know, nighttime offers a special closeness. But not just that. There are all sorts of interactions between people that somehow it's just not for the daytime. It's not for the daytime. And that's a more inner life. That's a more inside light. And so the moon was saying to Hashem, you know, you've got basically the equivalent of two suns. All we have is this bright light. Is it, what, about, what about all those other times? What's going to be for those times? And God said, ah, you're right. So God created an inside light for those occasions. For those occasions. So that's a very different take in terms of making the moon smaller. A very different take. But, um, but a beautiful one. Okay, so now, now amazingly, I'm going to tell you something, and you have to listen very, very careful, be, carefully, because this teaching can really be misunderstood. Could you repeat that last sentence about the outer and the inner? The... Yeah, that the moon, that the moon basically was saying to Hashem, there are going to be occasions where the light of the sun isn't the right light. It's not going to be the proper atmosphere, if you will, for certain social interactions to take place. That there has to be a more inside light in order to, uh, to be a better atmosphere, a better vehicle for those things to take place. We need an inside light. So God said, okay, you're, you're going to be the inside light. And that's what the moon became. Yeah. So, um, so, so now, this is the Gomorrah in Hulin, Daf 60. And hopefully I'll, I'll remember to tell you because there's something quite amazing that it's on that page. Um, hopefully we'll get to it. So, so uh, let's, uh, let's keep on going. So what does it say? The Gomorrah explains this event in a very phenomenal way. The Gomorrah points to part of the prayers that we say on Rosh Chodesh um, in the Musaf davening. That's the, the additional <coughs> offering that we bring on, when, when, on a new moon, a new month. And one of the offerings that we make is a, uh, 
a, a sin offering. That's how you would say it in English, anyway. So the Gemara is a little bit perplexed. They want to know, why are we bringing a sin offering? Like, it's a new month. What, what's the... Who did anything wrong? <laughs> you know, like, what, I, I've, just, I've just been minding my own business. It's a, it's a new month? Well, uh, what are we bringing a sin offering for? And not only that, but the language of the davening seems to suggest that God himself is bringing this sin offering. Now, this is one of those things. Every once in a while in the Gomorrah, you'll, you'll see something like this said, where a teaching that's so radical is, is put forth that it says that, that if I hadn't heard this from my teacher, I could have never have said it. And if I was about to say the following thing to you, I would say, kick me out of this shul and don't listen to a word that I say. Right? But this is not coming from me. This is coming from the Gomorrah itself, from the Talmud itself. Okay? So it says that God himself is asking or is obliging us to bring a sin offering for him for something that he did. And you say, wait a second. God's perfect. What do you mean? He did something wrong? This is like getting very way out. What's going on here? And then, you, okay, so now you want to pick something? You want to pick something? Let's say God seemingly did something that he wants to bring an offering for? Well, what would you pick under the sun? The suffering of the righteous? The profiting of the wicked? What would you, what would you pick for that which God seemingly is atoning for? And the Gomorrah and Chulin, page 60, you can look it up with your own eyes, says, for diminishing the light of the moon. Now, if you had to make a list, <laughs> where would diminishing the light of the moon be on your list of something that's happening every single month we're bringing that offering? And by the way, it says that the, the prayers that we say are in, are in a, a, a substitute for the offerings that we would make in the Holy Temple. So we're still bringing that offering every single month on behalf of God for diminishing the light of the moon. How do you understand that? Okay. So, I heard from two different sources the same answer. One was Rabbi Shlomo Karlovach, and the other was Rabbi Avigdor Miller. So, these are two very different great people from two very different sections of the Torah world. And they both said the same thing. I heard them both say the same thing. Which is, which is the following. And when you get into this now, you'll see it makes absolutely perfect sense. It really cuts at the human condition. Okay, you'll, you'll see how central this is. We're not just talking about the sun and the moon right now or esoteric things. We're talking about you and me right now in our own lives. So, it's the following idea. You see, Hashem made this world. And the glory of a human being is free choice. If we, if we, didn't, if we didn't have free choice, according to most explanations of why or all the explanations I know, of why the world was created, this world has no traction, so to speak. In other words, the whole point is that we're making decisions, and through our decisions, we're, we're, advancing, we're advancing perfection in this world. Just to make that point even stronger. I heard this from Rabbi Green, and I actually said it at my, as part of the eulogy at my father's uh, levaya, my father's funeral, Olav Shalom. And uh, it, the teaching goes like this. Who are you? Who are you? So, you're not your body. Because after 120, after a person's life, the body stays behind. So, you're not your body. So, maybe you'll tell me you're your soul. Well, there's a problem with that too. Because your soul is a piece of God. That belongs to God. It's not yours. Oh, well... I'm running out of easy answers now, right? I'm not my body and I'm not my soul. So what am I? So we are the sum total of the decisions we make in our lives. That's what we are. We're the sum total of the decisions we make in our life. A beautiful, for me anyway, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful definition of what it means to be in this world. You know? And I'll tell you something. There are some people who, they circle around things like Torah, for instance, and they go, well, I'm not sure. 
maybe, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't, I don't know, maybe. And the thing is, is that you can never be sure of anything. That is the bottom line. It's the bottom line. You, you can never be sure of anything in this life, in this world. You simply cannot. And the big joke, the big joke is that an atheist, someone who denies God, the existence of God, an atheist says, I know that there's no God. An agnostic says, I'm not sure, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. An atheist says, I know there isn't a God. But the thing is, the big joke is you can't prove that there's no God. You cannot prove that there's no God. You can make arguments about it. But we've got a physical universe around us which is running in the most phenomenal way. I mean, there's injustice and there's all sorts of imperfection, but, but all those things are part of the creation of the world. We're driving toward the messianic year. Our job is to address those things. That's why we're here. And we do that through our decisions, through our free choice, through our work, through doing the mitzvahs. We are partners with God in terms of perfecting the world. So, to point to injustice in the world and say that's proof that there's no God, and I know that there's no God, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's just wrong-headed. It's just wrong-headed. Because you, have, you can't argue against the fact that there's a world around you and that you, that you yourself are alive right now. How, how could that be? You know that it wasn't God? You know that for a fact? That's not intellectually honest. It's, not, it's simply not intellectually honest. You believe that that's the case. Aha. Aha. You believe that that's the case. So what does that mean? That means an atheist who, who says, I know there's no God, he's a believer. <laughs> and a religious person's a believer. <laughs> so they're believers and we're believers. We believe that there is a God, they believe there's no God. And they're very from. That's, 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 the, that's the joke. That's the real joke, you know, because they're so strict about it, you know. They're so orthodox about it, right? So, so anyway, anyway, so, so everyone's a believer. You can't know. Even if you want to deny the entire thing, you can't know. So what does it boil down to? Your decisions. What decisions do you want to make during your lifetime? That's it. Do you want to choose to believe that there is a force that cares about me, that created me, that keeps the world going, that keeps me going? Do you want to choose to believe? I want to choose to believe that. I want, I want, I want that to be my legacy. That I believe that the world was good. And that I acted on that. To the best of my ability. To the best of my ability. That, 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 I want that to be my legacy. Um... So, so the whole point of this world is that we have free choice and that we make these decisions. Now, here's the thing. We're getting back to the moon and the diminishing the light of the moon and why God asked to bring a sin offering on his behalf for diminishing the light of the moon. You see, because in order to have free choice, God has to be concealed. That's the idea of diminishing the light of the moon. That's what that's code for. Okay? God has to be concealed in this world in order for us to have free choice. The angels, we say, do not have free choice. The reason is because they're standing before... And by the way, even angels don't perceive the full extent of godliness. Angels are standing before a huge revelation of godliness, though. And as a result, they're immobilized in terms of their free choice. They, they just, you know, like robots or whatever it is, have to do the will of God. <coughs> Have, and want to do the will of God, by the way. Want to do the will of God. But they don't... There's no yes, no, because there's God. Now, we're not angels. But that sounds like, well, we're putting ourselves down. No. That's the awesome thing. Because we can do things that angels can't do. And it says that... I saw in the name of the Chofetz Chaim that if a person begins to speak Lashon Hara, begins to say something that's not appropriate to be said, right? And stops themselves. That the angels literally gasp in envy. They gasp in envy of what a human being is able to accomplish. Because the angels can't do that. The angels can't do that. Does that apply to anything that they hold themselves by? Yeah, yes. Yeah, 100%. 100%. That's the example that he gave. 
But anything, absolutely. So now, so God diminished the light of the moon. Now, I'll give you, which means he concealed his presence in this world. Now, I'll give you another teaching which, which very much uh, embodies this idea. The word for world in Hebrew is olam. Now, the root of that in Hebrew, and I, I'm amazed every time I, I, I think about this, the, the root of the word olam is ayin, lamid, mem, which in Hebrew means hidden. So the, wor- the word world and the word hidden in Hebrew are the same word, because God is hidden in this world. That's why hidden and world are the same word. Because God is hidden in this world. How hidden, by the way? I heard from Rabbi Chaim Sitron, who heard from his Rebbe growing up, God is as concealed in this world as he possibly can be, where if you seek him out, you can still find him. If he were any more concealed, if you sought him out, you wouldn't even be able to find him. But, if you seek him out, you can find him. Pretty concealed. As a result, and now we're getting back to the moon and why God is asking us to bring a sin offering for him. Now let's think this through. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that we can make mistakes. That's what it means. It means we can make a lot of mistakes. A lot, a lot of mistakes. Because if God's presence is concealed, well... Maybe I'm having a good day, maybe I'm not having a good day. Maybe I have strength today, maybe I don't have strength today. And maybe I'm doing the right thing, and maybe I just didn't get it together. And, uh, and Hashem, in His love for us, in His love for us, says, you know something? If you knew that I was there, if you saw me clearly, you never would have done it in a million years. And the fact that I hid myself means I have to take responsibility on some level for the fact that you did this thing. So you know what? Bring a sin offering on my behalf as well. Because I concealed the light of the moon. I concealed the open revelation of my presence. Otherwise, you never would have done anything wrong. Now, that's an awesome, 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 radical teaching. It's from the Gomorrah, Chulun, page 60. Look it up. Now, let me caution you not to misunderstand it and not to misrepresent it. Let me tell you what that teaching does not mean. It doesn't mean I can do whatever I want and it's God's fault. And it doesn't mean that I don't have to take responsibilities for my own actions because it's God's fault. That 100% is not what it means. It's 100% what what it doesn't mean. We are responsible for all of our actions, and to the extent that we mess them up, we have to do tshuva, we have to fix them. However, God recognizes the greater picture. He recognizes the greater picture. The human condition, if you will. He recognizes it. And that is incredible. That's incredible. Now, now listen to this. We'll go a little bit further and we'll start to wrap it up. One of the prayers that we say, it's called Kiddush Lavana. A very interesting prayer. It's the, 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 like the um, sanctification of the moon might be the English translation, although that's not a very good translation. By the way, when you make Kiddush Levana, an important... Um, w- what we do is we say this, this prayer, not to the moon, by the way, <laughs> to God, which is, this is a kind of a little point in halacha that I always like to point out, which is that when you say Kiddush Levana, you point east. You have to face east, so that people shouldn't think that you're praying to the moon by facing the moon. So yeah, you face east during that. Um, but anyway, that aside, um, the, the, for me, the key line in Kiddush Levana... Now, by the way, let me just explain what Kiddush Levana is. Everyone knows the moon starts off like it's nothing, 
and then it becomes a full moon, and then it sinks back down, and then the cycle is repeated. So during that process, where the moon is either three days old or seven days old, depending on which tradition you follow, starting at that period, before the moon becomes full, as it's starting to become full, you say this prayer, Kiddush Levana, and it's a short prayer. It's like, maybe it takes about five, ten minutes to say. Okay. And then people dance afterwards. So, so, um, so the restoration of the moon is one of the things the prophet Yeshaya, Isaiah, says is going to happen in the end of days. That the moon is going to be restored to its former glory. Okay? So the idea of the moon taking on its original shape is, is there's a sort of a one-to-one correspondence with that idea and the world reaching its, its state of perfection. So the key line that we say, the key line for me anyway, that we say in Kiddush Levana, in this prayer, is we ask God to fill in the flaw of the moon. In other words, that part which still needs to be rectified, please God, bless the world, bless us, bless creation, that that should be filled in so that, so that the moon should be full again. That, that's, 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 that's what it's saying. Now, isn't it interesting? Glad I remember this. Isn't it interesting? I, I realized that this whole discussion, which I told you, which is on in Hulun, page 60, right? What's page 60? Samich. What's Samich? A full circle. Right? So, you know, the sages, the sages, the sages, you know, they're just, they, as Rabbi Green said in another occasion, I saw that, but he said this about something else, but it applies to this. They put it on page Thomas, and they're just waiting. They're rolling on the floor laughing, waiting for the people who are going to get it, right? You know, wait, wait, wait till 2,000 years from now in Los Angeles. I'm sure people have figured this out before me, but, you know, oh, they're going to be rolling on the floor in Los Angeles 2,000 years from now when they figured out that we put it on page Samus, you know? You know, so... Say it again? is one of the uh, Hebrew letters, and it's a circle. It's a full circle. So, in other words, this, this, this discussion about the diminishing of the moon and the restoration of the moon, right, is, is on the... Is on the or this, this, this discussion of the diminishing of the moon, really, is on the page of a full circle which represents the full restoration of the moon. You know, a full circle, because we talk about filling in the flaw of the moon. Okay, now listen to this. I promised you that we were going to, earlier, that we were going to reference something from approximately the year 1200. All these things are already a couple thousands of years old or more. So... So the, the solar year is 365 days. Now the lunar year is 11 days less. It's 354 days. Okay? So how many, how many days left? 11 days less. Now, listen to this. Maybe I said it in the reverse order, but maybe I should have told you this fact first. But anyway... Rosh Chodesh, which is the prayer that we say, right, which, which talks about Hashem asking to bring this offering, right, and everything like that, talking about the human condition and the concealment of His light in this world and all the rest. And the moon, which was diminished, which caused all these things, right? The, the, and we want the moon to get back to, to its original size, the size of the sun, Right? And the, 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 the orbit of the moon is 11 days less than the sun, the, the lunar year. Do you know how many offerings we bring on Rosh Chodesh? 11. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? <coughs> and Rabbeinu Bechaya points this out. So in other words, this 11 offerings that we bring... 
is, so to speak, filling in that missing portion of the moon, is offered as a rectification for the diminishment of the moon or the diminishment of the light of Hashem, and is a prayer for the fixing of the entire world. Yeah. So the, there are eleven. No, each each Rosh Chodesh, each at the beginning of each new month, every month, we bring eleven offerings as part of the Rosh Chodesh offering, the new month offering in the Holy Temple. And to this day, we read about them, and our words are considered the, you know, as a substitute for the formal offerings. And those eleven offerings, Rabbeinu Bukhaya points out, parallels the fact that the lunar year, when the sun was made smaller, that the lunar year is 11 days less than the solar year. So in other words, just like at Kiddush Levana, during that prayer that we, pr- that we pray that the moon should be restored to its former glory, that we should fill in the flaw of the moon, that God should do that. And just like this whole discussion in the Gomorrah is on page Samech, which is a full circle, which is getting back to its full restoration of the moon, so too we offer 11 korbonos, 11 offerings, which puts the moon back at its fixed state with the sun, which again is a, a prayer for the, for the perfection of the world. So, someone asked me, well, you know, the moon is not a, uh, is, is not a, uh, does not give off its own light. It, it reflects the light of Hashem, or reflects the light of the sun, rather. And the Jewish people are compared to the moon because we too reflect the light of God. Right? So what is the idea of fixing the moon on a personal level? Right? That we should be fully restored. Because you see, because we have a Yetzirah, because we have, because we have um, a, a body with, it, with, its, with its own needs that sometimes combats against what it is that, that what, we, we, what we ideally want to be doing. Right? Sometimes we're like, we're like the moon in that we're not able to fully reflect back in the fullness, the, the, the light of the sun that's shining on us. In other words, God is shining on us a huge light. And what we want to do ideally is reflect back all of that light that's being shined on us. And we've been, so to speak, diminished because, you know, yeah, Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't get it. And so I'm not fully reflecting back everything. So the idea of the restoration of the moon, if you think of the moon as each and, one, each and every one of us, is that we want to fully reflect back all of the light that's shining on us. And that's our greatest prayer. You know, that we should be that, that conduit, that light unto the nations, that, 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 that thing that we were originally created to be. And Hashem should bless us that as we start this new year, that really we should become that. And we should be a light to each other and, and, a, and a light to the whole world. Okay.